The Apostle Paul summarized the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 by simply stating that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. That is the good news that we are to share with the world. And last week we noted that our witness must be seen as well as heard. People should be able to see the results of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in our life. Our faith cannot stay hidden in our heart. It must find expression in everything we do. Our attitudes and actions must reflect our relationship with the risen Christ. However, we also noted that there's no way our life can adequately communicate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At some point, our witness must become verbal. We must share the facts of the gospel with others. When asked about the hope that's within us and what it is that has made us zealous for good works, we must share the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that he forgave us, and that he is now living his life through us. We need to know the basic facts that led to our conversion, and we should be able to point to the scriptures where we found answers to our questions. But, as we also noted last week, when Peter says we must always be ready to make a defense for the hope we have, he's not saying that we have to be able to defend all the doctrines of the church. It's not the faith, it's our faith that we must defend. It's not a theological debate into which we are called, but a simple sharing of the hope that we have and what it is that has changed us. Having made that clear, Peter does, however, go on to take us deeper into the gospel than we need to take others when sharing with them the basic truths of the gospel. And what he says next is very hard to understand. Martin Luther even admitted that he didn't know what Peter meant in these next verses. But Peter did say it, and it's in the Bible. And while it may not be something we need to understand in order to share the gospel with others, we do need to examine it. And it is included in Peter's presentation of the gospel. So put on your thinking caps and let's go deeper than we need to. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, 
in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Well, in the midst of some hard-to-understand and rather strange statements, Peter does declare the fundamentals of the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Let's not overlook the basics while we sort out the hard to understand. He begins by simply saying, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. There's no problem here. We all understand that Jesus died for our sins. He is the just, and we are the unjust. Our sin cut us off from fellowship with God and condemned us to eternal death, eternal separation from our Creator, because the penalty for sin is death. But God did not want to lose us for all eternity, so he paid the penalty himself. He took on the form of man and came to earth for the express purpose of dying in our place. That was the only way justice could be served and mercy extended at the same time. Jesus died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. We understand that. What Peter says next, however, is where the problems lie. And not all believe it has to do with events that took place while Jesus was in the tomb, even though the next point of the gospel is that Jesus was buried. So let's sort through this. Again, stick with me. It's kind of weird. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons. There are obviously some questions that we need to answer here. You know, where did Jesus go? What did he preach? To whom did he preach? And what does it all mean? Now, there have been some pretty fanciful interpretations to answer these questions down through the ages, and we don't have time to discuss them all. But we will touch on some of the most prevalent ones, and then I'll share with you my conclusions for whatever they're worth. First, where did Jesus go? Peter says that he went in the spirit to spirits in prison. Now, most believe he is simply saying that while buried, 
While his body was in the tomb, Jesus went to the spirits in prison. That his spirit went to a place where other spirits were. Not all, however, agree even on this. Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But does that mean his spirit was made alive? Or that he was somehow made alive through the work of the Holy Spirit? All right, the Greek doesn't clear this up for us. In English, we capitalize the word spirit when referring to the Holy Spirit, but there's no capitalization in the Greek of 2,000 years ago. The NIV does capitalize it here. The New American Standard doesn't, but it does indicate in the margin that it might be capital S, Spirit. So obviously, some do believe the reference here is to the Holy Spirit, not just to Jesus, personal Spirit. And if that's the case, some argue that all this indicates is that it was through the Spirit of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that Noah preached to his generation. Peter simply says that it was in the Spirit that Jesus made proclamation to spirits in prison. Now, the New American Standard does add the word now. It's in italics. And in doing so, does make possible the interpretation that what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit spoke through Noah. Okay? By adding the word now, it can be assumed that those spirits were not in prison when the Spirit, capital S, made proclamation to them through Noah, but they were simply people who were alive in Noah's day, but are now dead. And their spirit people who were alive in Noah's day, but are now dead. And their spirit, they explain, took place several thousand years ago before Christ and isn't saying anything at all about the activity on Jesus' part while in the tomb. They believe when Jesus was in the tomb, he was simply dead for three days. Now, quite frankly, that is probably the most comfortable interpretation. Because if that's the case, we've learned nothing new. We know that Noah preached to his generation, and we know that Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Okay? But you've got to do a lot of maneuvering to come to the conclusion that that's what Peter was saying. That's not the most obvious understanding of what he's saying, and so most do reject that conclusion. Most do take the word spirit to mean that it was in a spiritual state that Jesus went to spirits in prison while his body lay in the tomb. This is the understanding expressed in the Apostles' Creed, professed by several denominations that state Jesus descended into hell. They believe that Jesus went to hell for our sins that that was part of the punishment he endured for us. Some then believe that while in hell, he preached to those who had been condemned, that he gave them a kind of second chance, 
a chance to accept him and get out of there. Now, to believe this, that Jesus descended into hell and gave those there a second chance, you've got to assume that the prison mentioned was hell and that the spirits were people who had been condemned and that God would give someone condemned to hell a second chance after they got there. But there's no evidence that any of these assumptions are true, especially the last one. In fact, the Bible teaches pretty conclusively that once we die, our judgment is sealed. There is no second chance after death. The rich man in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus certainly did not get a second chance. If you're going to believe in a second chance after death, you must accept an unbiblical universalism that teaches everyone will eventually go to heaven because who wouldn't change their mind after going to hell? (laughs) You know, if that were true... We wouldn't need to accept Jesus as Savior on faith. We could just wait till we got to hell, check out the situation for ourselves, and then make up our mind. But that's not the case. And the assumption that the spirits were spirits of dead people is totally unfounded. The text doesn't say that. It merely says Jesus made proclamation to spirits in prison. In fact, nowhere in Scripture are the departed spirits of men simply referred to as spirits. The term, however, is used by itself to refer to angelic and demonic spirits. And disobedient angels did apparently inhabit the earth during Noah's day. In Genesis 6, the account is leading up to the flood. And in the first six verses we read, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now this account is problematic. What does it mean? The most obvious understanding of The sons of God that's used here is that they were angels. 
And it says that the sons of God were attracted to the beautiful daughters of men and took them for their wives. Together, it appears, that they produced the Nephilim, a race of gigantic, wicked creatures, and that that was part of the reason why God destroyed mankind with the flood. Now, I know this sounds far-fetched. It sounds mythological. And we try to work our way out of this because we don't want to understand it this way. But other scriptures seem to confirm it. In Jude, it's only one chapter long, so verses 6 and 7, we read these words. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and 9, we read, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, the word translated hell here is actually the word Tartarus. And this is the only place we find that word used in the New Testament. It's not the word for hell. It's a different word. Tartarus, apparently, is a special place where God has imprisoned rebellious, disobedient angels, at least some of them, and specifically those who were disobedient in Noah's day. And this may very well be what Peter has in mind when he speaks of spirits in prison. And he's telling us that Jesus went to these disobedient angels in Tartarus and proclaimed something to them. But what did he proclaim? Peter doesn't say that he preached good news to them, merely that he made proclamation to them. And in 2 Peter, he tells us that these angels were being reserved for judgment. I believe what Jesus proclaimed to them wasn't good news at all, at least not from their perspective. I believe he was proclaiming judgment against them, telling them what he had done how he had just died for the sins of man and made it possible for them to have eternal life. 
how the plans to destroy mankind eternally had failed. Jesus had won. And since Jesus was victor, he could proclaim judgment against those evil spirits who tried to mess everything up. Their doom was sealed. They had failed. Now, why would Peter tell us this? Quite simply to encourage us, not to confuse us. He's been telling us not to fear those who would intimidate us. And here he shows why there's no need to fear them. If Christ has brought even the rebellious angelic host into subjection, we can be confident he's in control of everything. There is no need to fear. Christ is victor. He's already won the war. He proclaimed his victory while in the grave to those who had tried to destroy God's plan for us. Christ is victor. He's won the war. Now, we may still have to fight a few skirmishes, but our victory is guaranteed. Jesus has sealed the doom of Satan's host. And because of that, we can boldly live lives that honor him. And we can be courageous in sharing our faith. This tells us, don't be afraid. Be a witness. Christ is one. There's one other thing we might draw from this that is important, and that is that we shouldn't get discouraged if it appears that very few people are listening to us and to our message. Because in 120 years of preaching, Noah's family was the only one that believed. I think this makes sense. It's hard to accept. It seems weird. But I think it makes sense, and I think it fits the context. And all of this was done, apparently, while Jesus' body was in the tomb. But even that isn't the end of the story because Jesus arose. So Peter continues. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus' ultimate demonstration of victory came when he arose from the grave. Death couldn't hold our Lord. It couldn't imprison his spirit or his body. And to prove that, he walked upon the earth 40 days in his resurrected body, appearing to more than 500 people at one time. But his work was done, and there was no longer any need for him to remain here. So he ascended to the right hand of God after bringing angels and authorities and powers into subjection. Jesus died, was buried, 
and rose from the grave. That's the gospel. And the good news that we have been commissioned to share. And while we may not find it necessary or even wise to share the details of everything he apparently did while in the grave, we must make it clear that everyone has been invited to share in the benefits of his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, they can even share vicariously in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is why Peter brings up the topic of baptism. It's through baptism, immersion in water, that we share Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul detailed this beautifully for us in Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Baptism is like the floodwaters that brought death to an old world and birth to a new. It marks the death of our old, sinful, selfish man and the birth of new life in Jesus Christ. Baptism saves us, Peter says, not by physically removing dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience made possible through the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness that's been made available through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it is through baptism that we are able to actually share in a God-ordained, symbolic, even sacramental way in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The obvious question then is, quite simply, have you come safely through the water? Noah and his family did because they trusted God and did what he said. It didn't make sense. They didn't understand it, but they did it. Are you willing to pass through the water of baptism to demonstrate your faith in Christ and to express your desire to be washed, not in water, but in the redemptive blood of Christ. I believe that is the heart and soul of that very complex and confusing passage. And that's where we want to stay. 
Are you willing to be washed in the blood of Christ? He makes it possible for you to have a clear conscience before God. Not because you're perfect, not because you've lived a perfect life, but because you've been forgiven. Because you've accepted the fact that God took on flesh, died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. Are you washed in the blood? If not, you can express your desire to do so by going through the water and rising to walk in newness of life.